Hey there, this is Steve Lee with Veritas Catholic Network. These unprecedented times are a real challenge to all of us. We are so happy to be able to bring you faithful Catholic programs and enriching conversations, but we need your help to stay on the air. Please consider going to our website and making a tax-deductible gift to Veritas Catholic Network. It's www.veritascatholic.com. Thank you so much. On today's episode of Let Me Be Frank, Bishop Caggiano will talk about St. Catherine of Siena, whose feast it is today, and then also about St. Joseph the Worker, whose feast it is on Friday. Let Me Be Frank is sponsored each week by the Knights of Columbus Museum. Though the museum is closed temporarily, listeners are invited to take part in the museum's online webinars. Visit online at kofcmuseum.org or follow on social media for details. Hey everybody, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank. I'm Steve Lee, and I'm so happy as always to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, it's great to be with you as always. Thank you. Thank you. Excellency, today is the feast of a great saint, St. Catherine of Siena. Mm-hmm. So, a doctor of the church. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So I thought it'd be nice for to uh, hear your thoughts on her and um, yeah, just leave it at that. I guess we can start with, um, she was born in the 1300s and I learned Mm -hmm. yesterday that she was the 24th child of her mother. (laughs) Yes, who had 25 children in total. She is one of a twin, right? And the, uh, her, her sister passed away, but she survived and and she was followed by the 25th. Isn't that amazing? Unbelievable. But you know what? Steve, St. Catherine is the saint of our own time for two reasons. So in order to understand her greatness and what she can teach us, we have to remember the context in which she lived. So if you allow me just a few minutes, um, a lot of this, when I researched it, it just called to mind things I had forgotten, which are just, in my mind, astounding. So, first, the context of the world in which Catherine lived Catherine was born in 1347 and died in 1380. Why is that important? Because the bubonic plague broke out in Europe in October of 1347, the year she was born, and peaked in 1351. A true pandemic that started in Asia, came to Europe through Messina on 12 cargo ships from the Black Sea, that killed, historians believe, 30% of the population of Europe. Wow. 75 million people at minimum. And the people at the time did not realize that the contagion were fleas that lived on rats. And because fleas are so small that they're very hard to see, you could see the parallel in so much as we are living in a time of pandemic, and we're living in a time when the virus that is afflicting so many cannot be seen, uh, obviously in a more advanced medically and technological age, but it's the same fears, the same anxieties that she as a little girl must have been surrounded by. And the other thing that we need to remember is in Europe, this was the second plague that struck in the 14th century, because prior to it, there was the Great Famine 
from 1315 to 1322, where there was wholesale crop failure from Russia to Italy. And a significant portion of the population of Europe starved to death. So within 40 years, you had two catastrophes that afflicted the people of the age. So what Catherine teaches us spiritually comes out of that pandemic. And so, therefore, you and I and our listeners need to listen carefully to what she says, because it can be of tremendous help to us in our own pandemic. Right. The second piece, if I may, is the church. The church was a mess. <laughs> you think the church is a mess now? It was a mess. A mess. Um, why do I say that? is because at the time the intrigue between politics and religion was so profound that the French crown, most especially Philip IV, interfered in the conclave that elected Clement V. And Clement V himself was French. And because there was intrigue between himself and other cardinals, the bottom line is the papacy left Rome and went to France, to Avignon, for seven popes, until Gregory XI. And Catherine had a hand in helping to convince Gregory XI to return back to Rome after almost 70 years, more or less, of being in exile. So the church was divided. The church was not necessarily speaking with a common voice. Um, and in some ways, one could say the church now, we have our own divisions, and Christians are not, Catholics are not always speaking with a single voice. So Catherine has something to teach us about that. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, it's amazing, the parallels between her time and our time today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so spiritually, no, so spiritually, what is it that she teaches us? There are two things, I think. The first, there's a saying that Catherine wrote, and she said, in a time of turmoil, she says, build a cell inside your mind from which you can never flee. And what she means by that is, no different than the scriptures when they speak of the inner room to go into the inner room. At the heart of Catherine's theology was a mystical theology based on ecstasy, on her profound love of the Lord Jesus. And she describes it as a spiritual marriage, that she had an intimate union with the Lord that was nurtured in part because she spent her time in that cell where she was one with him in prayer and in communion that manifested itself in a life of charity among the poor and the sick. So she gave demonstration to the marriage that she had with the Lord, the, the, that unity she had by an outward act uh, life of charity, but it was nurtured primarily from the inward life of prayer. So for myself personally, we can't go out 
much into the world to do those acts of charity, although we can do it in our own homes, but maybe this is the time we should nurture that inner cell, right? To clean it out, sweep it out, clean it up, spend time with Jesus and build up that spiritual relationship we, we are to have so that when we are set free to go out into the world, we could follow her example. And so the, the first step to doing that would be simply silence? It is right. If you, if you look at that cell, you consider what does that look like, then it has spiritual walls. So to your point, inside of it, there has to be a refuge, a quiet, so that you can hear the voice of the beloved. And I can speak personally, I find that at times very hard to do because my mind is racing. Sometimes my heart is racing, all these things going on. And you say to yourself, I'm going to calm down. You say, what? <laughs> it's just part of our humanity. So it's an, it's, an, it's an art form. It's a discipline because it may take some days you go into that room in prayer and it may take just a few minutes. Other times it may take much longer to calm down, but you don't meet the beloved in the noise that easily. So that, I think you're absolutely onto it. And then prayer, prayer that starts with words and ends in presence, hmm. where in a sense, you know, you see these beautiful images of elderly couples who walk. I remember in Rome, in Rome, I used to go to Bord uh, the uh, Borghese, uh, the big park. And, you know, Sunday afternoon, everybody in Italy goes out. Even if they just walk around, it's just kind of like, it's part of the routine. And, and I would see, you know, a lot of young couples, but sometimes there would be older couples that would walk hand in hand among those beautiful paths under the trees and the, and the, and the Borghese is beautiful and um, wouldn't say a word to each other because there's a communion there, right? That doesn't require always conversation. Yes. And I think that sense of a spiritual marriage is to get to the point where you know the Lord, of course the Lord knows it, know him enough that you stop at some words and just the silence talks, just like yeah. you said. So for me in my house, you know, our, our house, we have three kids, me, my wife, it's always, nutty um so to get silence <laughs> to get silence in the house is tough <laughs> yeah of course maybe of course. would you recommend you know i could take a walk and kind of start by looking at the trees i'm well, looking for practical yeah yeah well, yeah no, whatever works sometimes yeah. it's a walk sometimes it's finding the discipline to get up before everybody else does Sometimes it's designating a corner of the house and said, guys, my time with Jesus, buzz off, go somewhere else, do what you have to do. Give me these 15 minutes. <laughs> right. Okay. Whatever it is. It could be even in the basement. I mean, uh, the garage or yeah. I, see when I'm in Connecticut, right? And Stanford, it's a bit harder for me. 
when I wind up back in Trumbull in my former residence, it's much easier because it's in the middle of, it's at the edge of the cemetery and there's a beautiful veranda in the back. That's just beautiful. It's quiet. It's just naturally, well, obviously, because the neighbor's not going to say Right? Stanford's more of a city thing. And then, it, you know, the times when I go visit my family in Brooklyn, it's like one step above chaos. <laughs> so it's just <laughs> finding silence. But so where is the corner of your house? I'm asking you now. Yeah. The corner of your house that you could say for maybe 15 minutes a day, this is my quiet place. Yeah. You know, uh, if you're conscious of it, chances are it becomes part of the routine. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to, uh, talking about St. Catherine of Siena, and you mentioned her mystical marriage to Christ and that mm -hmm. she would, um, uh, go into these periods of ecstasy, which I, you know, Teresa of Avila also did the same thing, but can you, mm -hmm. uh, tell us more about what that is, the mystical marriage and the ecstasy? Well, the mystical marriage is, first of all, we have to remember that St. Catherine was a third order, Right. So she herself was not fully vowed as a religious. So she lived in the world. She lived a family part of her life too, which then makes it even more remarkable that she could develop that inner cell and that quiet, right? So she's no different than us. Yes. So again, she, she gives us a great challenge, right? right? She wasn't in a convent locked up. No, she was out in the world. Right. But the spiritual marriage, it, it, it's very hard for me to describe other than to say that um, there is an intense joy, there's an overwhelming, unitive sense that Jesus is with you, united with you, one with you. Um, the, she used the, the term beloved. Um, in many ways, what we have between a husband and a wife, that unitive aspect of marriage is exactly what Catherine would have experienced with the Lord Jesus. Even though she could not see him or touch him, she had that same experience, a profound experience of loving acceptance and loving reciprocity on her part. And like the good Lord always does, he rewards his beloved Precisely by giving her the stigmata, okay? which she chose, she chose to have invisible, to be hmm. seen only by her. So this unitive relationship that Jesus has in the inner cell does not promise us a rose garden. Mm -mm. It promises right. us at times the garden of Gethsemane. It says, if you're going to give of yourself, then you will give of yourself and it will cost you at times dearly. So she shows us both sides, what we're asked to do and the cost of it. Just like Francis of Assisi had the stigmata that could be seen, Catherine had it that you could not see. It's interesting that, yeah, it's interesting that she chose to make it invisible because it's, I guess mm -hmm. that's a further act of humility. She suffers that pain. I assume there's physical pain there, but of she keeps it to herself. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Uh, because it was all about her relationship with the Lord Jesus, right? Right. And if I'm not mistaken, she only lived to be 33 years old. 
right? And in Catherine, which is interesting, the right, the parallel with the yes. Lord Himself, His earthly life yeah. is thirty-three years, right? And she, she administered in her own life to herself penances that I couldn't, I couldn't imagine attempting to do in my life. For example, there was many a day Catherine only had the Eucharist food of her day. That's it. I, I, I'm suffering until I get to lunch. She had <laughs> nothing but the Eucharist, right? Nothing. Amazing. For days, for days, for days. Extraordinary penances that she would yeah. do. And again, it's coming out of the stigmata. So she didn't run from the sufferings. She embraced them. Uh, she really is a remarkable woman, a remarkable woman. And the fact that a woman of her age could write to the um, leaders of Florence, asking him to make peace, to Gregory himself, the Pope, asking him to come to Rome. I mean, that takes courage. Yeah. <laughs> let's and let's she talk was about. To. Yeah, it's amazing. So let's talk about that because, as you mentioned, she's a lay woman. So she, she's lay and she's a woman. Right. And in the 1300s. Right. <laughs> And yet mm -hmm. her reputation was so great that, like you said, she was corresponding with some of Europe's most powerful people who were asking for her advice. Right, right. And, and you may ask, how is that possible? Well, I think the only way you could describe it is when you encounter the real deal, you cannot but reckon with it, okay? You know, I had, as I mentioned to you, I, I've had the experience, I had the experience of meeting St. John Paul II three times in my life when I was a student priest in Rome. When you meet the real deal, you need to reckon with it. It, it is, it was an experience where, and you know, and I'm not like any great romantic, but when I met John Paul, I met a man who could see through me. Hmm. It was the strangest experience. It's almost as if I was spiritually naked in front of him. He didn't know me from Adam and Eve. And, and that was okay. Because you meet the real deal. You meet someone who is truly striving for holiness. It's a force to be reckoned with. You cannot ignore it. Even the hardest of hearts cannot ignore it. Now, the hardest of hearts may attack it, may try to um, squash it, may try to silence it, but can't ignore it. You can't ignore yeah. it. Yeah. And I think that's part of what's operative. And that's why in part, she's a doctor of the church, which is a great honor. It's St. Uh, Paul VI that named her a doctor of the church with Teresa of Avila in 1970, the first women to be recognized because her theology is so profoundly important for the life of the whole church. And it's a spiritual theology. So in our age with this pandemic, if our listeners have an opportunity to become more familiar with Catherine's life and even some of her writings, what a tremendous way to spend these days that we're, we're quarantined and you know we're, we're, we're at home because the lessons coming out when we're again free to go back into the world, Catherine can lead us, right? She could be our yeah. role model. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw that Pope Benedict the Sixteenth said 
that she was given the gift of tears. And he explained that uh, this it expresses uh, an exquisite, profound sensitivity, a capacity for being moved and for tenderness. And this is, it's actually what you've been asking of all of us, right? With charity and, and um, loving other people through this time. Right. I wondered to myself, is it the case that the broken heart is the heart that can love the most? Hmm. Um, my experience has been that. My experience has been in my own life when my heart has been broken is when I was most able to love. It was also the great temptation, the most able to walk away. You know, the, 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 in the spiritual tradition, it says that the person who's capable of loving the most is also capable of hating the most because you give yourself away to either choice. Right. Of course, our choice is to love, but Catherine's sufferings, her penances, the stigmata, all that she endured softened her heart, okay? It created the cracks where the grace of God could enter into. It was a dying of her human heart and becoming one with the sacred heart. Hmm. So her charity was not something to do, it was just an expression of who she loved. Yeah. So it's strange, we live in a world that says you should never suffer, you should always be happy, you don't have to sacrifice, and we only make mistakes. And that's why we're miserable. <laughs> we're miserable. Because <laughs> you never get we to the heart of the matter. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you mentioned that she's one of, she's a doctor of the church. She's one of mm -hmm. only three or four women who are doctors. What does it mean to be a doctor of the church? And, and what was it that, uh, that qualified her to earn that title? Well, the easiest way to describe it, as I would, as I understand it myself, is that doctors of the church are saints, men and women alike, who through their teaching and their witness, give us a window into an essential set of truths by which every Christian is asked to live. So if you imagine, if you look at the great rose window of Notre Dame, which, thank God, was saved a year ago in the Great Fire. From far away, it is a collage of beautiful pieces of individual colored glass and painted glass that when you put it all together, teaches us. Or a stained glass window in a church. It's thousands of pieces put together that make like a mosaic that make a beautiful scene. So the doctors are painting pieces of that picture, which is the fullness of Christian life. And they each have a part to play. And the goal is to allow them all entree into our lives so we grow ever more deeply in understanding and living Christian life. Hmm. So we can't just take Thomas Aquinas and say, well, that's it. We need to look at no, all of these guys. No. Yeah. yeah. Right. Because even the devil can learn what Thomas Aquinas taught and have yeah. a heart of stone. 
Right. But then St. Catherine would say, the mind's important, but this is important. And other doctors will say, like um, uh, St. Cyril or St. Gregory the Great, what? it's filling in the pieces. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, and before we go to the break. for our time, my friend. The saint for yeah. our time. Really, it really is. I mean, she really embodies what um, Paul wrote. Uh, you know, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that's exactly what you're describing of her. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's got to be that love also that allowed her to um, confront uh, Pope Gregory and get him to come back, right? And... Yeah, she couldn't have confronted him if she, if yeah, she didn't have right. that love. Uh, it, right, and if she wasn't the real deal. So he would say, who is this crazy woman here? Come and talk to me. On the other hand, you know, historians debate what role she had, but, but, the, but the role in the end is irrelevant. The fact that she spoke the truth to the successor of Peter is the only thing that matters. What he did with it is the matter for his judgment before God. She fulfilled the role God had asked of her. You know, so when we speak about prophecy in the modern world, we think prophets tell the future. But in the Old Testament, prophets spoke to the present, the truth about the present, and reminded people of the promises that God would maintain. So in a sense, there was a prophetic aspect to St. Catherine because she told the people who were in power, the truth. And invited them to remember the promises. And being in Avignon is not where the Pope was called to be. Because he's the Bishop of Rome, not the Bishop of Avignon. <laughs> right, exactly. Mm -hmm. Amazing. So she's... Uh, Someone for all of us to go back and study some more about, especially like you said, for, for these times in the plague and the in the church and absolutely. Um, absolutely for us to model. Absolutely. So in Excellency on, on Friday, we've got another great feast day, Saint Joseph the Worker. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we'll, let's take a break and when we come back we'll we'll talk about that. Absolutely. Catholic Radio Works. And now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Hey all, we are back on Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. So Your Excellency, as we mentioned, this Friday is another awesome feast day. It's St. Joseph mm -hmm. the Worker. And I know you have a, a special devotion to St. Joseph. We have, we love him in our house. Um, mm -hmm. Before we get to the man, since it's St. Joseph the Worker, can we start by uh, talking about the, the value and dignity of work? Well, absolutely. Um, for some people, this may come as a surprise, but um, the church has always taught that work is, um, is a privileged avenue by which a human being 
can contribute to the greater good and exercise his or her gifts and talents for the greater good. It's a, it's a right and it's a gift, right? Everyone has the right to be able to have meaningful work and sustain himself and the people he loves. Right? It's a basic human right. And we have throughout the century struggled on trying to give access to everyone for that to be the case. Right? And even in our own age, there is great inequality. But nonetheless, we express who we are. Um, we share the gifts we have and we're given the means to provide for ourselves and those whom we love through work. So it, it's, it's not a mistake in Catholic social teaching that there is such an emphasis on uh, providing meaningful and I'm, what I'm going to call sustainable and substantial work for every person because it's part of their human dignity. This feast, though, St. Joseph the Work is new, relatively new on the calendar because it was Pius XII's response to May Day celebrations in the socialist and communist worlds because in communism work is not an expression necessarily of human dignity and it is not an inalienable human right but it is that which you do to contribute to the state for its purpose so it's a totally different understanding of the worker in a socialist and communist structure he or she is working not because it's an expression of their own dignity, but because they're contributing to the state and its plan. So he created this in addition to uh, Joseph, husband of Mary, which is the 19th of March, so that this worker, carpenter from Nazareth, can teach the world what work really is not what the world and a good part of the world and part of its political and economic structure wants us to understand it to be. It, it, Joseph teaches us what work is. Okay, so let me be blunt. Let me be frank, comes natural, okay? So, how many people detest their work? You know, thank God it's Friday. No, I get it. You know, you put in a hard day's week of work. You do want re relaxation and rest. I understand that. But if work is not in some sense fulfilling, in some sense allowing a personal expression of who we are, if it really is just drudgery, if it really is just for the money we earn, that's an awful position to be in. Yeah. Right? It's just awful to be in that. I don't know how many people feel that way. We may all feel that way at one time in our lives. But we can't live that way all the time in our lives because that almost becomes dehumanizing. Joseph, the tradition held, lived as a carpenter, supported his family, Mary, and his foster son. And we've heard in the scriptures, there's not a word uttered by Joseph. And therefore, there's not a complaint out of Joseph's mouth that we know of. But he quietly did what the Lord asked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he was the guardian of the Son of God. Now, could you imagine a more important role? 
just one, to be the mother of the Son of God. But other than that, to be the guardian of the Son of right. God, there is, I can't imagine any more important work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, well, he's in, one of his titles is the Savior of the Savior, right? Because he, he saved he, our Savior from Herod. Right, right, right. <laughs> now, 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 let's consider that for a moment. We talked about this a few a few uh, um, presentations, but before we before this one, but consider, you have your livelihood, you have your skill, you're set up, you're supporting your family, at least your wife, and now this this child that's your foster child, and suddenly the angel says, pack up and go to a different country. Now, if you don't have deep, profound faith and trust. You're going to say, this is not a dream. This is a nightmare. <laughs> I'm not, I can't do this. <laughs> right. But, but he did. He did because it, it wasn't about the comfort of his skill. It wasn't about that which he earned. It was the expression of who he was. Yeah. Which I would presume, if I could speculate, is that in Egypt, he may have found the opportunity to share the same skills and provide for his family while they were in exile or refuge, refugees. So I think Joseph is a remarkable, remarkable figure. As husband, as worker, as foster father, as, as the quiet protector of the mysteries of faith. And you know, Francis has a great devotion. Pope Francis has a great devotion to Joseph. And there's a statue that was given to me as a gift. It's Joseph asleep. He's literally like, you've seen it, Steve, right? The statue yes. is just like sleeping. Yes. And, and again, I've heard many different interpretations, but one of them is that he's able to sleep in peace and in confidence and in trust for he's done what he was asked to do hmm. each day. Yeah. And the same is true for us, right? The same yeah. is true for us. That's beautiful. I always thought it was, it was funny that you'd have a statue of somebody sleeping, <laughs> but it's also, that's when he heard the angel um, both times right. was he was asleep. So it makes sense. Right, right. Which means we're not inactive when we're sleeping. Okay? So it's not just, I turn myself on when I'm awake, I turn myself off when I sleep, because as you say, dreams factor import, an important role in the work of salvation and revelation, and God speaks to us. So there's never a time we're unplugged, right? From right. God, never, right? Yeah. And the fact that we're not in control of ourselves at sleep teaches us a lesson too because God's in control when we're sleeping and when we're awake in the end. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and Joseph, you, you, you started talking about um, his uh, taking Mary into Egypt and Jesus. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you know, I know he was always, I read, that up until the 17th century, he was always depicted in paintings as older and gray in order to kind of symbolically preserve the uh, perpetual virginity of Mary in, in people's mm -hmm. minds. 
mm-hmm. nowadays there's more of a a resurgence in showing him you know younger and stronger and more vigorous that's how i always pictured mm-hmm. him because he had to make the trip to the jerusalem uh every year mm-hmm. and he did that trip to egypt he had to protect his family along the way too correct right you know it's an interesting dichotomy which when if you think it through does come together because on one hand mary when the angel came and she said she did not know man the tradition holds that she had already and made the vow to be a virgin but how can you do that and also be betrothed to to joseph and there are some scripture scholars who say that the two can be held together because Joseph taking Mary on as his wife was in some part not meant to have that sort of conjugal relationship that a husband and wife normally have, but to almost be her protector, her guardian, so that she could be faithful to her vows to give her life to the Lord and not be reduced to poverty by not having someone who would protect her as her husband. Because in Jesus' time, if a woman didn't have a husband, you really would be relegated to poverty. You would be considered the lowest caste of society. So the fact that the church teaches Mary was perpetually a virgin makes sense if we understand, at least this way of understanding, this theory of understanding St. Joseph, that he was there really as her guardian too. He was the guardian of the Holy Family, Mary and Jesus. Right. And respecting their uniqueness in this in the history of salvation, in the economy of salvation. Yeah. Which makes, in my mind, if that, you know, as some scripture scholars understand Joseph, raises Joseph's uh, role and the dignity we owe him, in my mind, even more. Because yeah. as we say about Mary, that nothing about Mary had to do with Mary's life. It was all about the Lord Jesus, her son. I think it's safe to say that for Joseph, there was precious little, if anything, that had to do with Joseph's life, but it was all about Our Lady and this son given to him, Jesus. It was not about him or his desires or his wants or his opinions. It was all in service, all quietly, without a word being said. What a remarkable- Makes it more heroic. uh, Oh, without a doubt. What an example for a world that's filled with chatter and talk and language and communication and nonsense and and not as many deeds to match the words. Joseph said, forget the words. Got enough of those. Just do it. Is that the Nike thing slogan? Just do it. <laughs> just do it. <laughs> it was Joseph's just first. Do what you're to do. <laughs> he was the first. Just just do what you, what the Lord is asking. What a! It's remarkable. Yeah, and what a! It makes so you look. At, we look at Mary and we say, if God could pick anybody on earth to be His mother, of course, there's, there's Mary. I uh, right. And in in all of her characteristics and 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 all of her ways. And I listen to you and I say it's the same thing with Joseph because Joseph was his oh. f- earthly father. It's amazing. Right. Right, of all the men that ever lived. Now, let's consider this. For all the men 
that ever lived, he was the one chosen to be the foster father, the teacher, the guardian, the defender, the protector, right? The breadwinner of the most precious gift ever to exist in creation. Our Lady, and most especially our Lord. Now, that is a dignity and honor no other saint to whom can yeah. be ascribed. Yeah. It's remarkable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and so Jesus learns, he's, he's watching his, his earthly dad as he grows up, as he's a mm -hmm. child, and he sees this, he sees the obedience, he sees the patience and the love. And also in his humanity, he, he sees Joseph's example of work. So going back to Joseph the worker, and he learned, Jesus learned how to work as a man by, really by imitating him, wouldn't you say, Your Excellency? Uh, without a doubt, without a doubt. And, and you know, because the Lord was tr true God and true man, in his humanity, as you say, he learned as we do, right? And therefore, Our Lady and Saint Joseph were his primary teachers. And I think they taught in different ways, like all good parents teach in different yeah. ways, right? That's yes. why, please God, you, you have a mom and dad who teaches you different parts of the reality of life. Right. And to your point, I think if I could be a bit speculative, I would say that from Joseph, um, Jesus as a young boy would have seen fortitude and conviction Yes. and perseverance, and humility, and Joseph's profound love for the Father when they would go to temple and go to, to synagogue, so that what Jesus knew as God in his relationship with the Father, he saw in some way, although an imperfect way, for Joseph was a sinner, but he saw it also mirrored in his foster father too. Hmm? So what's the challenge for all fathers? Natural fathers, foster fathers, and spiritual fathers. Who's our model? St. Joseph. So we all have ministries or work to do, right? But what unites us all together is the same qualities that a spiritual father, foster father, natural father, the same qualities that we bind us all together are found in Joseph. So people say, how can I be a good father? Priest will say, a bishop will say, how can I be a, a better spiritual father? Earn the title that people give me, calling me father, which is an intimate, beautiful title to which I am given, but there is no natural reason to offer it, except mm -hmm. the spiritual foundation. Mm -hmm. And I think Joseph teaches us the qualities, though they're there. And I, in my own mind's eye, I, he was no pushover either. I mean, not at all. Jesus was perfect God, obviously, and perfect man. So Jesus wasn't a discipline problem. Right. <laughs> 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 but I'm sure his customers were. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, all the people who came in, I, I built this table. I want to give you half the price. You haggle. What, what haggle? I mean, I got to pay my bills. <laughs> I. <laughs> And I could see Joseph, you know, in the normal course of, of the things he did, being met with a lot of challenges and, and, and 
opportunities to not be persevering and faithful and lose your temper and tell them where to, you know, basically where to go. And where to go. <laughs> <laughs> but he, but I have great conviction he did none of that. Yeah. He's, so the same he, for us. Yeah. And then again, like St. Catherine of Siena, for today, you know, with the economy the way it is and unemployment, oh which has skyrocketed, mm -hmm. The, the dignity of work itself, you know, even if we are not doing ideally what we wish we were doing at the moment, mm -hmm. you know, I, I mm -hmm. personally know um, a couple guys who uh, are not doing what they were educated and they made their experience in, but they're doing what they need to right now to put food on the table for their families. And, um, and there's real dignity in that. I, I just think it's... I'm personally inspired by these guys right now. Without a doubt, we should all be. Because the truth is, there is no work that is truly menial. There is no work that cannot be graced by our involvement in it and our self-offering in it. And to bring our gifts and talents to whatever we can to the most complex scientific problem that a scientist may have, to the simplest of whether that is delivering the mail or pumping gas. Because the truth of the matter is, in a pandemic, if they were not pumping gas or delivering the mail, where would we be? Yes. That's not menial and that's not meaningless. It has great honor and great dignity. Yeah. We just live in a world that wants to create haves and have-nots. St. Joseph teaches us otherwise, to your point. And this pandemic perhaps has opened the eyes of many to a lot of the inequality and in some sense the attitudes that we betray even unbeknownst to us that there are strata of work that are more dignified than others. And that's a basic lie. Because the dignity is what you bring to it. Not what it brings to you, what you bring to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not it's not surprising then that uh, there's been such a uh, renewal in devotion to St. Joseph lately. Right? Excellency? I mean, I guess it wasn't there is. Yeah. There was it there in the early church? They, uh, to be honest, I do not know. That I honestly do not know. And I, I have not, you know, it's a question actually, to be honest, I've never thought of. So you stumped me here. <laughs> I need to give that thought, maybe do some research. I, I am not aware of it. I'm sure in some of the homilies of the fathers, Joseph came up, but it wasn't a prominent theme. Right. It's almost as if, even in sacred scripture, he just disappears. Yeah. After Jesus is found in the temple, I think that's it. Right? And Our Lady becomes silent in scripture after the first great sign at Cana. Hmm, yes. There's a lesson to be learned there. Right? Yeah. So... I don't know if he, pro he figured prominently, but but I think you are absolutely correct that in the contemporary church, Joseph, his 
prominence is rising for all that he can teach us. And Pope Francis's devotion to, to St. Joseph is a big help because if you recall when he began his papacy, he asked Joseph's name be included in all the Eucharistic canons explicitly. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I've been in parishes where they've written him in the corner with a little arrow. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, not to purchase a whole brand new, because some of them are brand new books. I mean, it, right. that would be a waste of money. But yeah, so he is signaling to the church that every time we gather for Eucharist, he should be remembered by name in yes. the communion of the saints. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, and he has, he has so many different titles. Do you have, among them, I mean, a lot of a lot of guys lately say, "Well, I love his title, Terror of Demons," which is a pretty cool title. Um, for yes. me, <laughs> for me, I sat down and I thought about it this uh, this week, and I said, "You know, I went through his titles, and I said the ones that really, for whatever reason, particularly at this moment, um, touch me are Patron of the Dying and Most Obedient, Joseph Most Obedient." Right. I wonder if if there are any favorite titles that you have? I, I, I don't have a particular favorite title. If I were to pick one, it is the title that we started our conversation with. So because a lot of my friends um, will call me to task, they, they claim I'm a workaholic. I don't see it. <laughs> you, Excellency? <laughs> I don't see it, you know? However, um, I do enjoy what I do. And therefore, I find it hard to describe as it just being work in the typical sense. But I, I, what I do and who I am has kind of become almost one. And I see Joseph the same way. Now, please, God, if I had the attributes of St. Joseph, I would be okay. <laughs> I have a lot of work to do. So I think Joseph the worker is probably the one that's endearing to most because it strike, it gives me the greatest challenge personally, right? To make sure that what I do, my quote unquote work, which is my ministry, is not uh, a false subterfuge for a, a, an occasion for praise, or self-advancement, or building my esteem, or my esteem in others' eyes. It should be a, a self-gift of who I am, regardless of what it accomplishes, what its consequences, and what people think of it. Right? It's, it's my offering to the Lord. Yeah. So, if there were a title of Joseph, that would be the one I probably would have the, would be most endearing, because it's the one that challenges me the most. Awesome. Let's take one more break, Excellency, and then we'll come back and we'll answer some listener questions. Yep. We need Catholic Radio because we need the voice of the church in the public forum. We live in a time that the secular voice dominates so thoroughly that we need to get that Catholic perspective out. Just as Fulton Sheen used radio and TV in the last century, we need to continue to use this means to announce the Catholic faith in the public forum. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank. Today, we have two questions. Excellency, they come, they both come from outside Connecticut. So um, you've got a broad appeal, I guess. The, the first one, 
well, so the first one comes from Canada. It's uh, from Jackie oh. in Tor- yeah in Toronto, and she writes. If Adam and Eve's sin was eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, did they have true free will before the fall if they didn't have full knowledge of what they were doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then she says, I'm asking about how did the entrance of concupiscence change human free will? Well, that's, that's a great question, Jackie. And I would say this. I think we can, we can logically back our way into the answer by simply saying this. If the choice that Adam and Eve made was a sin, and it was, there had to have been both freedom and sufficient knowledge to apportion to them culpability. Right? Having said that, right, there is a depth of knowledge that they were seeking that was not for them to have precisely because they were told they would become like God. So the fall was pride. The fall was not respecting the truth of who one was or is. So one could say that they had knowledge that was appropriate to being a human person but they did not have the knowledge that they sought, which was to be like God. And our freedom is real, but damaged because of the effects that have we have inherited from the fall. So our desires are inordinate. You know, the Feast of St. Anselm, in his writing, he says, to come to know and love the Lord is the source of my joy. It's also the source of true freedom. So when we look at the fall of Adam and Eve, there was real freedom. It seems to me sufficient knowledge for it to be sinful. It, the fall was an act of pride, the initial act of pride, and we've been digging ourselves out of it ever since because we too, in our concupiscence, always are tempted to consider ourselves first and our desires first rather than what right reason and revelation teaches us should be the correct response. So I hope that helps. Great. Second question comes from Cecilia in Saddle River, New Jersey. Ah. Yeah. Cecilia writes, what can we do to encourage teenagers to get involved and how do we increase their devotion when they become young adults as well, like in their 20s and 30s? It seems like there's such a large gap between confirmation and marriage. So, mm-hmm. Well, I think um, your experience of the gap is an experience that many, many parents have to struggle with when they're trying to you know, form their young people, because many parishes actually do not have much to offer between confirmation and marriage. It's all about engaging young people. It's engaging their minds, engaging their hearts, engaging their wills, or I would say their hands. Um, So I take it from the question that perhaps in your home parish, there may not be as much to offer. So my immediate advice is 
but what is there on the diocesan level that could be in some way, shape, or form activities or things that you could direct your young people to. But the truth of the matter is, okay, this time of quarantine, of staying at home, has created an entire avalanche of opportunities online that didn't exist before. It's almost as if, as I've said in prior podcasts, uh, um, necessity is the mother of all invention. Now suddenly we have priests and bishops and lay leaders engaged online with service and devotions and mass and Bible readings and homilies and prayer groups and the list goes on and on and on. So that world, I call it the electronic platform, young people navigate far more easy than I do. So maybe in this interim period, maybe explore with them what's out there because they may have their eye or their heart or their mind caught by something that didn't exist six weeks ago. And it only takes a hook that there's a genuine a desire, there's a, something reawakening. If, they, if, they, if they're touched, then they will look for more. It's, it's like a bonfire starts with a spark. So we just gotta light the spark and set them loose to see where else they could find it. So I would say you probably have not had a better time to engage young people and young adults than this time because of everything that they can discover literally at their fingertips on their laptops and on their, on their tablets. Awesome. Yeah, so you, only need a, you only need a small, small yes to God's grace, right? And you can work with that. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so uh, thanks. We want to continue to hear from all of you. So send in your questions to, for Bishop Frank via social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Thanks for another fantastic conversation, Your Excellency. I learned a lot from you today, as I always do. Well, Steve, I enjoy our time together, and, and you're a great dialoguer, really, <laughs> and a great man of faith, and I, I appreciate the opportunity to share faith with you and our listeners, so I thank you. Thank you. And thanks to our sponsor, the Knights of Columbus Museum in New Haven, offering a journey through history, art, and faith. Please check out the museum's online programs. Information is at kofcmuseum.org. And you can find Bishop Frank Caggiano on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you, Your Excellency, and may I please ask for your blessing. Absolutely. Lord our God, we ask that you send your Holy Spirit upon all of us to continue to guide and protect and heal us in this time of crisis. We also ask that you bless our efforts to grow in greater faith, hope, and charity. And may the example and intercession of St. Catherine and St. Joseph help us to find, encounter, love, and serve you ever more deeply. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Till next time. Amen. Thank you. God bless. Thanks, Excellency.